All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got an awesome Thursday morning show for you, and we start with BC movie theaters fighting to open their doors again. Vancouver's historic Rio Theater, like other movie theaters in the province, they were shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But now the Rio has found a workaround. They put a sign up outside this week. It said, screw it, we're a sports bar now. The plan is to reopen this Saturday, not as a movie theater anymore, but as a sports bar. Now, don't forget that pubs and bars are still allowed to operate. Now, will the Rio Theater really be able to pull this off? Well, it looks like they will. Yesterday, the B.C. Health Ministry released a statement saying the theater appears to meet the guidelines to reopen as a sports bar. The government even congratulated the Rio Theater for their ingenuity in finding a way to reopen. Now, have a listen. This is extraordinary to me. Now, have a listen to this now. This is Corinne Lee, the owner of the Rio, talking to her own Linda Steele yesterday when she got the news that the province was okay with this plan. Here's what she said. I'm happy because it means we can, sounds like we can probably go ahead with our our sports bar plan. But at the same time, it's just like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? That uh, instead of changing the rules that don't make sense, they would rather praise us for being innovative and ditching the arts for sports. Yeah, yeah. So let's see if we get this straight here now. It's okay to go to the Rio Theater now to watch a hockey game, but you can't go there to watch a movie. What is wrong with this picture? And what is what about all the other movie theaters in British Columbia that are shut down? Are they going to rebrand as sports bars now and reopen? All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Nuria Bronfman. She's the executive director of the Movie Theater Association of Canada. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. The movie theater business across the country, I'm sure, has just taken an absolute walloping. Are, are most theaters in the country shut down, or does it sort of vary from province to province? Well, it does vary, but at the yeah. moment, uh, I would say about 92% of theaters yeah. are shut. Yeah. yeah that's so brutal. It's, it's, a, it's, a di- it's, yes, it's a dire situation, to be sure. Yeah, there's a lot of people out of work, a lot of businesses struggling to hang on here, I'm sure. What do you think of this uh, this development here in B.C. where you have a shutdown movie theater saying, okay, we're going to reopen as a sports bar, and the government giving them the thumbs up? What do you think of that? Well, I mean, listen, I, I didn't hear the comments, and I haven't seen the statement, so I'm going to try to give the Ministry of Health the, the benefit of the doubt. You know, we, yeah. we're, you know, we, we don't want to get into a public fight with them because we've been working with them to try to get us all open. But if, if, if the comments that were made are true, and I assume they are, you know, to me, they're very disappointing and disheartening. And to be honest, tone deaf at best and callous at worst. Uh, I think that it completely undermines the seriousness with which cinema operators have carried out the guidance of public health and ignores the basic realities of how our business uh, functions and what we have previously advised them of. In in other words, we have given them a lot of data that provides, um, you know, the scenario that that our movie theaters work under. First of all, we gave them protocols that were approved by public health Um, And, you know, our environments are unique. We've got each auditorium has 90 plus ceilings, right? Each auditorium, for the most part, has its own HVAC system. We are uniquely poised in terms of a a retail environment to 
monitor how many people are in our environment. We know how long a, a movie theater, um, a movie runs for. Right. So we, we can stagger show times so that there's the appropriate, appropriate amount of people within the environment. Uh, we can reserve seats so that people are at least two meters apart. There's very little interaction with other guests and other employees. We are not an environment where people are sitting across from each other. Uh, we're hoping that people are quiet unless they laugh <laughs> to themselves. There's no talking. There's no screaming. Right. And, you know, so to us, it just doesn't make sense. And yeah. we've been, we've really been trying to work with them to impart all of these different, um, you know, issues to them. And we don't, you know, we, we don't begrudge any, any industry or business for being open. I mean, sure. my gosh, if you right. can be open all the better. But, but what, as they are reopening businesses, it just is absurd to me that they aren't looking at our environment as we function as a business, which is to run movie, movies, and yet are allowing, you know, movie theaters to open to masquerade as sports bars. And by the way, most, most movie theaters do not have liquor licenses. Right. So I applaud the Rio. Corinne is amazing. And she, yeah. she is ingenious. I mean, but the fact that she had to do this is just a sad state of affairs, in my yeah, opinion. No, I totally agree with you. And, and I will uh, endorse what you just said about Corinne Lee. I, I think she is really a, a genius business person. And I congratulate her for finding a way to open up. But I just so wonder I. about... Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, good for her. That's awesome. I hope, it, I hope it's a big success for her. I really do. But, I mean, she was in the fortunate position of having a theater that already had a liquor license. Most Correct. movie theaters yeah. do not have that. So it's not like all these other shuttered up theaters and shut down theaters could, could re, uh, pull the same trick here and say, well, we're no. sports bars, too, because they don't have, you need a liquor license to be a sports bar. That's right. right. And, yeah. and so that's exactly right, Mike. And, and so, you know, what we have also told um, the ministry is that, you know, many of these theaters are on the verge of collapse permanently. Wow. So, and, you know, and they, and they, and they don't want to incur more debt. They want to put their people to work. They want to open their businesses. They want to, you know, contribute back into the community and right. it's just, you know, we have proven that there has been no, um, there has been no incident of transmission within a movie theater environment. Now, right. that's not to say that some people have had, have come to work with, you know, with the coronavirus that they got somewhere else, yep. but it was dealt with immediately. There was no transmission, not only in Canada, but around the world. Wow. So, so our environment is, is, very, very, very low risk. And all we're asking is to be able to operate our businesses because, you know, many of these independent theaters across BC are, you know, independent businesses that have been run sometimes by the same family for decades, and they are now in danger of, of shutting forever. So all we're asking is that we are recognized as a business. It's not a gathering place. It's not a, it's not a, you know, faith-based organization. It is a business and we are a safe environment and we have been safe. We proved that we could, could operate safely. Even Dr. Henry said that we were operating very safely before she shut us down again. Um, so, so, you know, all, all we're doing is asking them to recognize that we are a safe environment and not to mention 
you know, a really good environment for people to, to go to out of the house. So, yeah. you know, most transmissions are, are, are happening in gatherings in homes yeah. and absent of uh, an alternative for people, um, this is going to continue. So, so we're saying yeah. we are a very safe and risk-free, risk, low-risk environment for people to right. enjoy outside of the home. Here's, here's the other thing that I'm wondering about that just seems completely illogical to me, that the government is saying, yeah, no, it's no problem. You can reopen as a sports bar. So you're saying, like, okay, like an average hockey game is like something like, what, three hours long? It got, you're going to have guys chugging beer, hooting and hollering, whooping it up when, the, when a goal is scored. Like, we'd normally enjoy a hockey game as opposed to a, a movie which is maybe a couple hours long, and people are generally sitting sitting quietly. Like, how do, how does this make any sense at all that this is well, going to be allowed? Well, you 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 nailed you nailed it. I mean, and and we have you know we have um, stated our case time time and again, uh, several times. And you're exactly right. As I as I mentioned before, everyone is sitting in the same direction. No one is screaming or yelling or you know. Um, Hooting, hollering. <laughs> right, right. Um, so it, it, and you know, most films are about two hours long, um, yeah. and there is, you know, we can provide very appropriate social distancing, um, and and very little interaction with other guests and other employees when you enter and exit the theater. Okay. So it, yeah. So it's it's you're right. It's it it doesn't it doesn't make sense to us, and we're hoping that. When the government is reviewing businesses that can reopen safely, they really will consider movie theaters because I think it's it's uh, it's important. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the gig economy now. This has become a huge part of the economy. Think about it: Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. How about these booming? food delivery apps like DoorDash and Skip the Dishes. So many people working these part-time gig jobs. Tons of people using these services too. So lots of questions here. Are these gig platforms good for the economy? Should we be encouraging them to expand and thrive? What's it like to work for these platforms? Can you make good money? Or maybe some of these workers uh, exploited. Uh, let's talk about this now. What a great guest I've got for you, uh, Professor Juliette Shore. She's a professor of sociology at Boston College. She's the author of the book, After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi there. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Good to okay. talk. It's really great to have you here. Like uh, When you think about these businesses... Uh, in some ways, they, they seem kind of new in in our in people's minds, but in, in other ways, like they've been around a long time. Like these things have been around for like a decade now, right? Yes, they uh, the big ones were founded two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and right. then there were like you know lots of copycats. Uh, but Uber, Airbnb, uh, those are a decade old now. Yeah, right. And how big are they? Like have they become a big a major part of the economy. Well, in terms of actual numbers of workers, they're not huge. Um, they are, but they're growing. And uh, particularly with the pandemic, as you mentioned, the delivery apps have really been expanding. Um, oh, yeah. So, you know, they're getting up there. But the numbers that we have in terms of fraction of the labor force, we're, you know, we're talking in the single digits. Right. One of the major pitches that you hear from these gig platforms is that they're, 
they're good for the uh, environment. So, like, for example, if you're going to be an Uber driver, if someone can take an Uber, well, maybe that's someone who doesn't have to buy a, an, another car, put another car in the road. Or uh, if you can rent out a, a room in someone's home instead of getting a hotel, well, maybe we won't have to build so many hotels. Does that kind of hold up to scrutiny that these things are good for the, for the environment? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest quote-unquote lies that we've been oh. told about this sector. And here's the simple reason why. So the, the, the examples you give are, are the two big areas, uh, transportation yeah. and um, lodging, which involves travel. And the simple uh, explanation of what's going on is that these apps have made transportation and travel a lot cheaper because an Airbnb is cheaper than a hotel. An Uber is way cheaper than a taxi had been. And so what does that mean? People do more of it. So what we're finding is, Hmm. you know, big increase for private transportation. Where Uber comes in, you see a rise in vehicle miles traveled. You see a rise in the number of new cars because people are buying cars to to drive for Uber. Be an Uber driver. Um, People traveling more because they can get cheap hotels, cheap accommodations. So, no, it's been the, the reverse. It's caused a lot more carbon to get into the atmosphere. Well, they're certainly successful, right? Like, people love these services. I mean, people, I've stayed at Airbnbs. Lots of people do. Uh, people like the, the immediate service and that they get from calling an Uber car. Uh, you, you know, is that an argument for them uh, to be a good and thriving part of the economy? People love these, these services. Yes. So, you know, it, there's, there are, the consumers like them a lot, uh, yeah. both because of the convenience, but also the low price. Yes. So we have to, you know, we, we got to remember that low prices come with a cost, whether it's the environmental cost we just talked about or the ex- exploitation of labor. I mean, they mm. started out paying decent wages, but over time, the, 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 the companies have really squeezed the drivers. So many of them are making minimum wage or less. Uh, after their expenses are are taken care of. Um, Airbnb is interesting because the hosts and the guests both really like Airbnb, but as it got commercialized and you have more and more hosts who are really basically running hotels, uh, illegal hotels, it caused a lot of problems in the neighborhoods. So it took a lot of rental property off the market. You're in Vancouver. You've got a really hot uh, real estate market. The more Airbnb you have, the fewer rental properties and, and the higher rents are going to be. So it's the, the people who aren't using Airbnb who have issues with it. And I think what we really need to do is sort of, you know, balance out the, 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 the costs and the benefits here. So yeah. um, it's not that we shouldn't have Airbnb, but if you have commercial operators, you know, they should be subject to the same kinds of rules and zoning laws and so forth that, you know, hotel and motel operators are. Yeah, they brought in some pretty strict regulations here in Vancouver on Airbnb operations for precisely the reasons that that you just outlined. And and it seems to be going okay, although some people would like to see them even even stricter. But let me ask you about um, Uber, because we just had a big fight here in British Columbia over uh, Uber. It was finally allowed here. We're one of the final jurisdictions in North America, actually, to to allow the operation of of these services. Do you think that uh, Uber drivers can make a good living like I, I remember when we first had a big fight about uber here first time i ever took an uber car 
was in Seattle, and I remember asking the driver, do you like working for Uber? And he said, oh, yeah, I love it. I love making the extra money. And a lot of the Uber drivers I've talked to over the past few years have said the same thing. They enjoy they enjoy the work. They like it. They like having the opportunity. But do you think that they're underpaid or exploited? So first thing is to think about the two kinds of Uber drivers, the people who do it on top of something else, so the extra money folks. And those are the majority, but they do a minority of the work. Uh, increasingly, what we've seen in the U.S. in the cities is that the vast majority of the rides are being given by people who are basically doing it as full-time work. Full-time, right. And those people are not making a living. They're, you know, they are making poverty wages or below. Um, it, it's a heavily black and brown labor force, majority mm-hmm. immigrant in some cities. And without regulation, they're getting really exploited. But, but the regulation does work. In New York, they put in a minimum wage for these drivers, and they put a cap on the number of licenses. You have right. to be licensed in New York to drive an Uber just like a cab. Um, I mean, not, there's no medallion, but you have to get a license. So they have a $27 before expenses hourly wage, 17 wow. after expenses. So you know, you can, 17, you know, it's, you're not getting rich on that, but you might be able to, you know, uh, pay your basic expenses. But without it, we're seeing those people who are, you know, might be making less than $9, $8 uh, after, depending on their expenses. So uh, it can work with regulation. Um, I do think that the solution in the ride hail uh, is for the full-time workers to get employee rights, which will give them minimum wages, insur- right. health insurance. I mean, we have to worry about that in the U.S. Do you we think, don't, obviously. Unemployment, yeah. workers' comp. Do you think that uh, quite often when these platforms are, are uh, approved, it, they're very disruptive to the traditional uh, businesses that were in place before, like notably the taxis are the kind of the classic example. They were in, in, there was a huge fight here in BC from the taxi industry wanted to keep Uber and Lyft out of here. Uh, um, at the end of the day, though, I mean, do, what about the old-fashioned supply and demand, basic free market economy, economic forces that have been worked well for us for for a long time? I mean, you know, you know, when pay phones started showing up there people were saying, well, maybe they shouldn't allow cell phones because it's going to put the payphone business, payphones out of business. Like, is there an argument there in your mind, or is it just a question of kind of regulations? So taxi actually is a really different kind of industry than some of the others. Um, I believe strongly in the technology, you know, that like these are good new technologies. And we have seen taxi industry, you know, have adopted these apps and you, you can use them to call a taxi in the same way that you can call an Uber. But, but here's why the quote-unquote free market, and there, there is no such thing as a free market, but why it doesn't work in taxi, which is when you have a skill like driving that almost anybody can do, and you have a situation of sort of chronic labor markets with uh, unemployment and people not able to make a living and so forth, which is what happened in the Depression and what you've also seen in my country for quite a while, you will inevitably get too much supply in those markets and it will drive wages down. And that's why we ended up having 
licensing for taxis and a medallion system. Now it got it got really corrupt and problematic, but there are some markets that if if you don't have some safeguards in them, will basically just exploit people down to a level that's inhuman. I mean, you see it in poor countries all the time. One of the things about the wealthy countries is that we tried to do something about that, putting in minimum wages and so forth. So um, one way or another, you need to make sure that people who uh, enter these markets and work hard can make a living wage. And you can do it by regulating it by industry. You can do it by having the government man, you know, mandate a minimum wage across the economy. You can do it with a, you know, benefits, additional benefits, many ways to do it. But just saying, you know, no regulation for something like food delivery or ride hail or yeah. grocery shopping or, you know, what many of these apps do having a totally unregulated situation will mean you're going to be exploiting people and, you know, driving them into poverty. Uh, last question for you. I think that the technology is a big part of it. Like people love to, to click these apps on their smartphones and see a beautifully designed app that works really efficiently and they get what they want super efficiently. And maybe that's part of the, the secret of their s success. Uh, and that's a great thing, right? Like, do you think that there's obviously a lot of challenges with these, with these businesses as they come online, but, do you think um, on the other side of it, do you have any optimism that this type of technology could actually be a really, really good thing for people and for the economy and for jobs? Yeah, I like the technology, but the, I think the really important question about it is, is sort of like, what's the larger context that it's being used in? So let's take something like these delivery apps or, you know, other apps which allow people to do services for other people. I mean, I've called these, you know, a, a servant economy, because if you, have a, if you have an income distribution that's getting really unequal, where you have some people with lots of money at the top, and then you've got all these people who are scrambling just to pay their rent and get food, that th these apps will really, you know, they'll create kind of some right. of the worst of the servant relationships. Okay. If you, ha if you have a more equal context, yeah. Then the, the apps, you know, you'll have better outcomes because it they you can get those those benefits that you talk about without them helping to perpetuate, you know, like really extreme inequality. And I think one of the things that happened with the apps is they came in at a time of growing extreme inequality, and that's part of what we're seeing from them. Right. But but think about a world in which, say, workers owned those platforms and they could set decent wages and enforce decent working conditions. Okay. And there, there's a lot going on in Canada actually for these platform cooperatives. There's a group called AVA in yeah. Quebec, which is uh, fostering platform cooperatives. They use the technology, but they have different social relations to go with it. And I think that's we'll have the to, answer. We'll have to leave it there. I wish we had more time because we only scratched the surface, but thank you for your time and thanks for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about what's going on with uh, Starbucks now closing down hundreds of their stores in Canada. I like going into Starbucks occasionally and grabbing myself a latte. It is kind of expensive. I had a buddy of mine say to me once, maybe they should rename the stores to Five Bucks 
instead of Starbucks. Yeah, it can be a little pricey, but I enjoy going into Starbucks. There's one near um, near my home. It's kind of a nice place to hang out. You can't really sit down in there anymore in most of the Starbucks I've been because of COVID-19. But man, oh man, they are closing down a lot of Starbucks in Canada. The company saying that they will close up to three hundred Starbucks locations across the country here by by March. Now that is a lot of stores. Now think about this. I'm just checking out the Starbucks website. How many Starbucks locations are in Canada right now? According to the company's website, 1,400. So you do the math on this, you're going to close down 300 stores. That's like over 20% of the Starbucks locations potentially shutting down here in Canada. By the way, where was the very first Starbucks in Canada? It was in Vancouver, opened up in 1987 at the waterfront uh, SkyTrain station. All right, let's talk about this now. What's happening at Starbucks? My guest is Robert Carter, managing partner and food industry advisor at Stratton Hunter. He is an expert on the Canadian fast food industry. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Robert. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, the quick service industry, you reminded me of that last time. They don't like to be called fast food. They like to be called quick... quick is it quick service? Yeah, that's right. Quick service. Quick service. So, fat, yeah, fast food still has that connotation of unhealthy, not good for your food. Right, right. Like when you <laughs> when you say fast food, you're thinking burger and fries. Exactly. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. What's happening at Starbucks? Do you have any intel on this? What's going on? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, this is interesting. Starbucks has done a great job since their expansion in the Canadian marketplace and really helped, you know, redefine and shape the coffee category in Canada. But... You know, the business model has changed, not only for Starbucks, but the restaurant industry overall. So a lot less focus on the bricks and mortar type stores and more focus off the off premise. And, you know, Starbucks with their app, people able to order for pickup, uh, even moving to the delivery space has been a, a growing part of their business. Okay, so yeah, I've, I've noticed the app seems to be very popular. People can pre-order their drinks and just walk in and they're ready to go quite often, which is which is a great service for people. But why does that mean they got to shut down the stores? Is there fewer people sitting down and, and having the coffee in the store? Well, if you look at their business, more of their business is growing from the off-premise. So yeah. in order to maintain the cost structure for the bricks and mortars and having the on-premise, you know, the... The, the business model and the costs associated with are really shifting. So it becomes more economically viable to have off-premise with less bricks and mortar and seating overall. But, you know, to your point, we're talking 1,400 units right across Canada, uh, about 20% of them closing. So they're still going to yeah. have a pretty good presence of bricks and mortar where you can go in and sit down. Right. So for people maybe wondering, gee, I wonder if the Starbucks that I go to is going to close down. The company has not released uh, a specific list of which stores will, will shut down. They're just saying a lot of them will be closing down. So maybe a lot of them are already shut down. Do you think, um, have they been suffering during the pandemic? There's no doubt that, like the industry in whole, have been suffering for sure. But, you know, Starbucks is has been doing really well in the Canadian marketplace. In fact, they've been growing at a double-digit rate over la year over year over the last couple of years. So, you know, when they close, talk about closing these units down, I expect it will be, in, in, and we know that in Toronto, downtown Toronto, they had already started piloting some of these types of stores where you order ahead and you just show up and pick up your item pre-pandemic. So I think they've just accelerated that program. 
most likely going to be in some of the concentrated urban areas where they had smaller footprint style stores. Do you think this is kind of maybe a permanent market move by Starbucks here that they close down a lot of these stores and they remain permanently shut down? Or could maybe some of them reopen once this nightmare is over and we get beyond this pandemic? No, I think this is a a business, uh, a change to the business model that was in the works um, and is going to be part of their strategy moving forward. Uh, In fact, you know, we see other restaurant concepts looking at these style of, you know, smaller footprint, more off premise. We've heard everyone's heard about these ghost kitchen style where you don't even have access to the restaurant, only access through delivery. So as Canadians become more and more comfortable with ordering their food online, expecting it to be delivered or just for pickup, we'll see more of this type of model emerging. Interesting. My guest is Robert Carter from Stratton Hunter. He's an expert on the Canadian quick service food industry. Uh, it's interesting that when you take a look at this this sector, a lot of these uh, fast food or quick service restaurants seem to be doing pretty well. Like I, I remember seeing one recent article. I took a look at McDonald's. That's I, I believe they beat their their profit expectations in the last quarter, and their and their stock was doing pretty good. I mean, are are, are a lot of these companies doing well despite the pandemic? Yeah, so when we look at who is doing well, uh, operators such as McDonald's and and Starbucks, um, these are operators that already had a pretty good digital strategy pre-pandemic. They already had drive-through or strong takeout or off-premise part of their business. So a lot of them in in the McDonald's here in in Canada and in the U.S. has has been doing quite well because of their digital strategy and shifting. And this whole technology and the app whatnot from a consumer standpoint has really helped those businesses out. Okay, but it seems like, I don't know, maybe it's like there's winners and losers going on here, right? McDonald's seems to be doing, yeah, so McDonald's is doing okay, but, you know, here you got Starbucks closing down hundreds of stores. What, What is McDonald's doing right? Well, McDonald's is following a very similar format. You know, if you look at how McDonald's has evolved over the last couple of years, you know, if you looked at a McDonald's from 10 years ago to today, it's not not even recognizable. A lot more, again, focus on the digital engagement from a consumer standpoint, the off-premise focus, the drive-through, advance of the menu. And ironically, they put a strong focus on the coffee category and coffee's number one consumed item in Canada from the restaurant segment. Canadians love their coffee. So, you know, simple off-premise type menu items and engaging with consumers digital changes the restaurant business model. Okay, the pandemic of course has been brutal on the restaurant industry as a whole. A lot of a lot of them is shut down, a lot of them just yeah. barely barely hanging on. Do you think that it seems like if you take a look at the fast food sector that you specialize in, do do those type of restaurants, that special, especially when they do a lot of takeout business, were they sort of better positioned to survive this thing? Like, is that why maybe some fast yeah. food's doing better? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were much more uh, positioned from a business model to yeah. weather this type of storm, uh, for sure. Um, but that being said, you know, we're, we're still talking about dramatic declines, even for that quick service segment. But yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, you know, their majority of their business going to that off premise. Uh, this was the fastest area of growth for their business versus people going in and sitting down and eating. So, you know, it was easier for them to pivot the overused word, but uh, yeah. from their business model, it was much easier for them. 
Okay, which uh, which quick service chains are 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 doing well right now? Like we talked about, McDonald's seem to be beating the market expectations there and doing pretty good. Are some of these other quick service chains uh, doing well in Canada too these days? Yeah, we see you know growth coming from uh, as you mentioned the top players. You know, McDonald's, Tim Hortons. They had a strong off premise. Um, they engage consumers more digitally as well so they're doing uh okay even the chicken players you know our homegrown brand mary brown's doing a great job as they continue to expand um another uh you know uh, sister to tim hortons the popeyes they're doing well the pizza players are all doing well so any of the operators that had that strong off premise that had a good digital connection with consumers these are the ones that are weathering the storm all right, welcome back to the show, talking fast food. Oh, sorry, quick service. Quick service food industry with my guest, Robert Carter from Stratton Hunter. Uh, let's go to your phone calls because we got lots of them. Elaine and Ladner. Hi, Elaine. Hi there. Hi. What would you like to say? I would like to say, um, actually, I just came back from Starbucks just now, ordered oh, yeah. my drink on the uh, app. Yeah. And uh, I, I consider myself a Starbucksaholic. I think <laughs> I would be devastated if my local uh, Starbucks closed. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. For, for, especially if you've got one that you like that's handy for you. You know, is there any indication that they're going to shut down? Do you know the one you go no, to? No, yeah. don't know. Don't know. They haven't put out a list. Elaine, thanks a lot for the call. Um, they have not issued a, a precise list, Robert, on which stores are going to close, but I wonder how they will decide which one. I guess the stores that are underperforming, they get chopped, right? Yeah, it could be a combination of <clears throat> what's underperforming. Uh, it also, again, what ones can they convert to this new model? So, you know, although they're saying they're, they're closing them, a lot of it, I think it's going to be converting to this new concept where it uh, doesn't have the, the on-premise where you can go in and sit down, but will still have the ordering capability. So I would expect they're probably doing some analysis that says, okay, we've got three or four stores in a certain market area. If we just have one kind of uh, hub unit, and then we can cover this trade area through our digital app and online right. ordering. Let's go to Vicki in Kelowna. Hi, Vicki. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, I have a tip for you. Okay. If you go to Wendy's, I like Wendy's Baconators, so once or twice a month, my husband will go there with me. And yeah. uh, you keep your bill. You have to ask them for your bill because they do not automatically give it to you. Yeah. And what you do with that bill is you go on your computer and you fill out the little questionnaire, which is quite little. Um, they give you a code number. And the next time you go to Wendy's, um, I order my Baconator, and he gets the chicken sandwich, and the chicken sandwich is about $6. Right. He gets that for free. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Just for filling so out a you, survey. You just fill out the little survey. It takes yep. you, I don't know, two minutes. Okay, I like it. I kind of like the chicken sandwiches at at, uh, at Wendy's, too. Uh, Robert, have you heard of that? Yeah, well, this is a good incentive program to get consumer feedback, for sure. And, you know, at some other time, we'll have to talk about the chicken sandwich war that's taking place in Canada. It was great your caller mentioned the Wendy's chicken sandwich. But, um, yeah, a lot of the restaurants, we use this type of uh, technique to get consumers back uh, and as well to get their, their feedback on the, on the program. So hopefully it was a good chicken sandwich. Okay, next time I go to Wendy's, I'm definitely going to do that. And we definitely have to have you back to talk about the chicken sandwich war in, in Canada. That is yes. for sure. Absolutely, we will do that. Benita on the line in Arrington. Hi. Hi, how 
Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, as, as you know, the Arrington is a small town near on the outskirts of Parksville, a small town. Yeah. And Star- Starbucks moved in into town, oh gosh, maybe seven or eight years ago, and I was just dumbfounded by that. I, I, I've never been to Starbucks anywhere, um, and I noticed the one thing that did happen was that a lot of the smaller uh, coffee shops and businesses started to lose business to Starbucks. Uh, uh-huh. And um, uh, I just wanted to say that I'm so glad Donald Trump is out. And I <laughs> wanted to know if you think that maybe uh, a town like Parksville, that they'd be closing down a Starbucks or keeping it because it's really the only one that's kind of within a radius. Do you like going there? You like it? I never. I've never gone. I never okay. will. Okay, because you think they just what they cannibalize these smaller independent stores. It, it, it was right? quite apparent. It was quite apparent for the first few years that they had taken over from a lot of our really nice coffee shops. Yeah. Okay, Benita. Thank you for that, uh, Robert. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? When they uh, open up into the small towns, and that that's something that's been fairly new for them in the last couple of years. Starbucks moving into these smaller areas. Usually they wouldn't open up unless they had a population of a certain size. So, you know what, they may see some of those um, outlier stores close down. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's tough when the, you know, any kind of chain comes in and it threatens the, the local independence. Um, but on the flip side, you know, a lot of times when <clears throat> the local independents are faced with those types of chains coming in, they'll really uh, up their game and increase their innovation and strengthen their operation. So, right. you know, it's a double-edged sword. Okay, Dave uh, calling from UBC. Hey, Dave. Hi. First of all, I'm a Starbucks guy, but KFC has got the best chicken sandwich. We'll just put that up. <laughs> okay. <opinion>. All right. <laughs> um, being out here in the UBC area, there is at least five Starbucks that have closed down due to lack of business. Now it's getting tougher and tougher to find a Starbucks, say, in Point Grey or Kitsilino. you got to go out of your way now, maybe into Carisdale or hmm. somewhere else. And I just find that there's too many of them, even though it's my favorite coffee. And um, they're just shutting them down just to try to make a profit. And instead of having three or four stores in a neighborhood, they got one now. Okay, Dave, thank you for a good call. We just got a minute left here, Robert. Could that be a factor here? Maybe Starbucks grew too big too fast in Canada? Yeah, it's tough to say if that's really a factor. I mean, when you look at the unit growth of Starbucks, you know, 1,400 units, um, still nowhere near what we'll see in a Tim Hortons. You know, a Tim Hortons is an example, over 4,600 units, or even a Subway at, you know, over 3,000 units, and McDonald's somewhere in the range of like 1,600 units. So, you know, did they grow too fast? They may have put locations in areas that couldn't support it as they expanded yeah. into some of the rural areas or had overlapping uh, units. So I think as we see the, the closing of some of those units, again, they'll take a look at how many they have in a trade area and maybe just have one sort of hub in a specific area overall. Robert, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. I look forward to having you on again. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, welcome back to the show. Have you donated any used clothing recently? There may be a lot of people out there, maybe they've thought about it, but they're not sure if it's even safe to donate clothing right now because of COVID-19. But our show contributor, John Jang, can explain that it is safe and it is badly needed this weekend. John. 
Hey, good morning, Mike. Looking out the window right now, you would have no idea that snow is actually on the forecast for the upcoming weekend all throughout Metro Vancouver. And for most of us, that means staying at home, indoors on Sunday, treating ourselves to a nice warm mug of hot chocolate or coffee, and then getting the fireplace going. But of course, not everyone is that fortunate. And right now is the best time to think about And right now is the best time if you're thinking about donating winter clothing to those that are in need. And for more on this, we are now joined by Ali Amalanik. She is the Director of Fundraising and Communications for the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre. Good morning, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. The Downtown Eastside Women's Centre, it's an invaluable resource in the community and one that needs to be operating at its highest level in order to make a difference each and every day. So with that said, uh, I noticed there's a need for donations right now. And as we get set for this weekend, a donation wish list has been created by the Women's Centre. Could you walk us through that wish list and what items specifically people should start thinking about donating? Absolutely. So a very important uh, part of our operations at the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre is providing donations such as warm clothing items, shoes that are gently used um, and laundered so that women can use them right away. Um, We're especially concerned about the cold weather rolling in this weekend. So we do have a specific wish list um, that we are looking for this week in particular. Um, because we do know that there is a chance of snow, and of course that does mean that it will be extra cold for women that we do serve in the downtown east side. So our current donation wish list, we're looking for winter clothing, rain jackets, winter jackets, uh, snow and rain boots, all gently used. Um, We're looking for umbrellas, ponchos, blankets, and sleeping bags. And any emergency blankets, those foil packable blankets are really helpful as well in those emergency situations for women. Um, And at this time, of course, with COVID-19, we are still looking for non-medical masks, so fabric masks that can be washed and reused by women. You bring up COVID-19, and I'm actually wondering, because of the pandemic, has there been a noticeable decrease in the number of donations the Women's Centre has been receiving over the past year? I would think there are people who wanted to donate their clothing, but maybe were doubting whether or not it was actually safe to do so. Right. You know what? We've been very surprised um, by the amount of inquiries we've we've had regarding donations. Um, We've received a lot of generosity from the community, which we're thrilled about. Um, They've all reached out to see what they can do during these times. Um, And we have been accepting clothing as usual Um, it is a very low risk of spread from clothing donations. Um, So just as long as we ask that things do come clean and ready to go, um, you know, in plastic bags would be best. Um, Something just to make sure that we are keeping the items as clean as possible um, when they are given to us. One thing that people should remember as well is to be respectful. And if you're going to bring any donations in person, you're asked to wear a mask, Wear some gloves because it's about doing everything possible to be as safe as possible. Absolutely. And they can expect the same from our staff. We will be there ready to greet you um, at the door with your donations, wearing masks and gloves. So um, thanks so much for bringing that up. That's definitely important. Now, this isn't as high on the priority list because the cold weather is approaching. But if you're thinking about donating makeup to the Women's Center, uh, from my understanding, that is allowed. It is encouraged but it has to be brand new once again because of the risk associated with COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. Makeup is obviously something um, that we are asked 
asking for um, we're asking for new makeup at this time, not used makeup. Um, I just think that there's an extra risk there, and we just want to be as responsible and respectful as we can um, to women's concerns as well. So we would love to accept any new makeup items. Any new accessories, things like scrunchies for hair, um, you know, we are accepting small amounts of toiletries. However, our focus right now is definitely on our winter clothing and warm items. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, all of this sunshine and blue skies this week, it's really deceptive because we know that the cold weather system is quickly approaching for the weekend. So if you're going through your closet and you know you have old rain jackets or winter coats that you're not using anymore please do think about donating. I think it's really important, Ali, that I mentioned donations are accepted from everyone. But because this is a women's center, we need to respect that. And while men are allowed to make donations, they have to respect the policy and then stay at the door outside without coming in. Yeah, and all genders are welcome to uh, come to our door to make a drop-off. Um, so anytime our door is open there, we do have a cart where you can safely place the items on. Um, so all genders are welcome to come by to make these donations. Perfect. Now, before I let you go, if anyone out there is thinking about donating, maybe wants to learn more about the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, or if they're thinking about making any kind of monetary donation, would the website be the best resource for them to learn more about how they can get involved with that? Absolutely. So people can find out more information about the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, and they can also make online donations to our programs and services at dewc.ca. Um, and I'd welcome people to go there and learn more about our current operations and what we're in need of at this time. Again, that website is dewc.ca, D as in Delta, E as in Echo, W as in Whiskey, and C as in Charlie, dewc.ca. She is Ali Almalanik, Director of Fundraising and Communications for the Downtown Eastside Women's Center. Ali, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. You take care now.